You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean or whichever platform you're listening on. And if you like what we're doing, you can show your appreciation by buying us a cup of coffee. Check the episode note for links to buy me a coffee. September is the best month in the Czech Republic because it's mushroom season, hunting season, so there's lots of fresh game on tables, and vino brani, or wine harvest season. Sure, we're known for beer, with the highest per capita consumption of that wonderful drink by far in the world, but a lot of people may not know that this country is also known for wine. So let's take a look at viticulture culture here in the Czech lands. A city is much more than just a collection of buildings. It's a location, it's a history, it's a culture, it's ideas and ideals, and a city is also, most importantly, the people in it. This is Prague Times, the podcast that takes a look at the city of Prague in the Czech Republic. With more than a thousand years of history, there's a lot to talk about. We'll talk about the past of Prague, but we'll also talk about the city as it is today, future plans for the city, and much more. It's Prague then, Prague now, and Prague later. And this is Prague Times. A bit of history first. The Roman 10th Legion, known as the Legio ex Gemina, or the Twins 10th Legion, was used by Julius Caesar to conquer Gaul and then got moved to Aquincum in modern-day Budapest in 103 CE and then later got a new HQ in Vindobona, which would become modern Vienna. This put them right near the Amber Road, which facilitated the transport of amber from the Baltic and North Seas south to the Mediterranean. This route followed prehistoric trade routes that went all the way from today's St. Petersburg in the north through Riga in Latvia, Kaliningrad, Gdansk and Wroclaw in Poland, Olomouc in Brno here in Moravia, just past Vienna, down to Ljubljana, and finally to Venice. The Twins Legion built an outpost near the Palava limestone outcropping in southern Moravia, near the village of Mikolovska, not far from today's Pasochlavki a lakeside resort town with an extensive Roman archaeological site. Back near the end of the 1st century CE, the last of the Flavian emperors, Domitian, decreed that no grapes could be grown north of the Alps, a rule that would hold for quite a while. Then in 278, general-turned-emperor Marcus Aurelius Probus dumped that rule and actively encouraged grape planting in the more northern colonies of the empire. One of those places, it's thought, was the area around Pasochlavki, and thus the Moravian wine region got started. Wine was certainly grown and made in the area during the Great Moravian Empire, and the man who would later be known as St. Wenceslaus cultivated wines in and around the Bohemian town of Mjolnik, where he is still known as the supreme burgomaster of the vineyards. Viticulture was expanded by various monasteries who brought in grape varieties from abroad, mainly France and Germany. Henry I of Liechtenstein was given the area around modern-day Mikulov, as well as a lot of other land in southern Moravia, and new rules were established on winemaking, which was then further expanded throughout the region. In 1368, Mikulov was the largest producer of wine in all of Moravia. A number of vineyards there and in Valtica, another Liechtenstein holding, were extensively documented and are among the oldest vineyards in Moravia still surviving today. Moravian wine production hit a snag during the Thirty Years' War of 1618 to 1648 when many of the vineyards were burned, but then they bounced back and the area became a true wine powerhouse, 
So much so that in 1763, Austrian vintners asked the Habsburg Empress Maria Theresa to put limits on how much wine the Moravians could make, since they were dominating the whole marketplace in Central Europe. She did so, but then died 17 years later, and three years after that, in 1783, Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II got rid of those restrictions and even had new vineyards planted in southern Moravia. And so another wine renaissance in the region began. Sitting right smack dab in the middle of Europe, near some major trade routes, the Moravians had access to all kinds of techniques and information about the noble grape. A wine academy was set up in Bzenitz in 1855 and soon followed by ones in Znoimo, Valtica, Lednica, and Mikolov, and also in Mjolnik in Bohemia, north of Prague. No story of wine in Europe can avoid the sad inclusion of the grape phylloxera, sometimes pronounced phylloxera. These are sap-sucking insects similar to aphids that eat the roots and leaves of grapevines. They also leave behind nasty things that permanently deform the roots and also enable fungal infections to take hold and flourish. All in all, they're pretty bad news for grapes and those who make their living from grapes. These hungry little monsters wiped out the vast bulk of grapevines in Europe. In France, for example, they killed over two-thirds of all grapevines. And they came to these lands in 1890, spreading around for 12 years or more and wiping out massive numbers of vines. These nasty little critters came over to Europe from the eastern United States, on boats obviously, but it was some North American vines that had evolved a number of defenses against these bugs, including a sap that clogged their mouths so that they couldn't feed, that would save the day. So the solution was to bring over these resistant North American vines and then crossbreed them with the European survivors here. In France, for example, almost all the grapevines had to be replaced or hybridized with California grapevines, which had originally come there from Hungary and then later France, but had adapted to the California soil and climate and these new pests. In Moravia, winemakers and growers got their hands on resistant stock and started replacing their losses, often keeping only one variety of grape in a particular vineyard to reduce risk. Things suffered a bit under communism, what didn't after all, but in 1995 new rules and guidelines were established and then further modifications to how things were done were made after the Czech Republic joined the EU in 2004. According to the 2004 wine legislation, there are two wine-producing regions here. The Moravian wine region, which has 96% of all the vineyards in the Czech Republic, and the Bohemian wine region, which has the other 4%. While that makes sense, since there are only two regions in the country, Bohemia and Moravia. In true Czech tradition, we'll look at the underdog first, Bohemia. Hanging out around the 50-degree latitude line, the same as Wiesbaden in Germany's Rheingau wine region, Bohemian vineyards are among the most northern in all of Europe. Germany has some more northerly ones in Saxony-Anhalt and on the island of Fuhr, up near the Danish border, and there are a few in Sweden and Norway, and remarkably one tenacious winemaker in Russia's Siberia. Though grapes have been cultivated here for quite a long time, according to local legends at least, it was Charles IV who really pushed for a wine production in Bohemia with a series of decrees in 1358. 
Rudolf II, King of Bohemian Holy Roman Emperor, was also a fan and oversaw an expansion of the local industry during his reign, planting an additional 3,500 hectares of wine grapes. The main wines grown here are Müller Thurgau, with just over a quarter of all Bohemian vineyards focusing on that single variety, and Rieslings for whites, and Saint Laurent, Blaue Portugieser, and Pinot Noir for the reds. More about these grape varieties later on in this episode. Bohemia has two sub-regions, one around the town of Mjolnik, which is the main producer of Bohemian wine, and the other around Litomiaschitze. There are a number of other very small producers. The Bohemian region counts 37 in total in one sub-region, but again, they don't really make enough to talk about. For Bohemian wine fanciers, it's all about Mjolnik. It's a nice town, sitting up on a bluff overlooking where the Voltava and Laba rivers, or the Moldau and Elba, meet. In fact, there's a traffic light where the two waterways meet for boats to prevent collisions. The area has been settled for ages. St. Wenceslas's crazy pagan grandmother Ludmilla was part of the Pshoven tribe of Slavs that settled there in the 5th century CE. They have the biggest vino brani or wine harvest festival in Bohemia outside of Prague. Technically, Prague is included in the Mjolnik sub-region. Litomerzica, about 20 kilometers south of Usti nad Labem, is the other sub-region, with 29 wine municipalities in total. This area has been growing grapes and making wine out of them for over a thousand years. There's been a long-standing rivalry with Mjolnik for dominance in Bohemia and especially for access to the lucrative markets of the capital. The town of Litomerzica was once a Paleolithic settlement, then a Celtic settlement, then an area for conquering Germanic tribes, who then migrated west, leaving it open for Slavic tribes to settle in around the 5th century. Moravia is really the capital of wine here, and it's divided into four sub-regions, one around Mikulov, another around Znoimo, one centered on Velka Pavlovica, and a fourth over in the area that abuts Slovakia known as Slovatsko, sometimes called Moravian Slovakia. All told, there are over 4,300 wineries, wine vaults, wine cellars, and wine tasting rooms in Moravia. Slovatsko is a funny little region. Tucked away in the southeast corner of Moravia, it borders Slovakia and Austria, and has taken on a number of cultural elements with those countries. And yet it's also considered to be the heart of, quote, real Czechness, or certainly Moravianness. The Morava River, which gives the whole region its name, which maybe once meant muddy river, flows through here. The biggest town in this area, Uherska Hradiště, which means Hungarian hill fort, grew up near one of the candidate locales for the lost capital of the great Moravian empire, Visegrad. The town of Hodenin is known as the cultural village where long-standing traditions of Moravian folk dress, dance, and music are still celebrated. Hodenin is also where T.G. Masaryk, the first president of Czechoslovakia after World War I, was born, and the Czech that is spoken here is kind of, sort of, what Dubrovsky and Jungmann and all the other language guys during the 19th century Czech National Revival ended up settling on as sort of an official Czech or Hoch Czech for you German speakers. The variable climate here, occasionally influenced by cool but damp Atlantic breezes that make their way this far inland, and quite a bit of sunlight in the summer mean grapes tend to ripen slower here than in the rest of Moravia, making the wines more aromatic. It's an often overlooked wine-producing area, but can make some very good wines. The village of Mutjanica has the 10th largest vineyard area in the country, 283 hectares and 919 producers, the second highest number in the entire country. 
Velka Pavlovica is closer to the action, as it were, along that east-west axis in the south of Moravia where most of the wineries are. It's another candidate for the lost Moravian Empire capital of Visegrad and is really mainly known for having excellent, excellent vineyards. There's a lot of limestone loam in the soil, as well as sandstone and marl, which is a carbonate-rich mudstone with lots of silt and clay in it. Velka Pavlovica is where a lot of Moravian reds are made, extending all through the subregion, including the village of Velka Bilovica, which has the most registered vineyards of any other municipality in the entire country, 956. The whole subregion has four wine villages in the top 10 for vineyard area, totaling 1,980 hectares of vineyards in the top 10 size-wise and over 2,700 separate wine producers. It is, in fact, the largest subregion in terms of production volume, and yet isn't as famous as the last two we'll talk about. The small city of Znoimo was once known for making the best pickles in the entire Austro-Hungarian Empire and still makes the best ones in the Czech Republic, though there was recently a scandal involving Turkish pickles being bought and repackaged as Znoimo ones. It's a lovely small city sitting up on top of a tall rock that's catacombed with tunnels overlooking the Taya River and the nearby Austrian border. It has the weird distinction of being the birthplace of Leopold Loika, the driver for Archduke Franz Ferdinand, whose assassination sparked off World War I. When the post-war borders were redrawn and Czechoslovakia was created, Znojmo ended up here and not in Austria, though it just as easily might have done. The region makes excellent wines and boasts one of the largest and most famous vinobranis in the country. The stony soil is perfect for Veltlin and Rieslings, and the red variety known as Frankovka, a pretty hearty grape that's pretty high in tannins that can be pretty good sometimes, though sometimes they can also not be very good. If you're going to try a Frankovka, you should probably go for one from the Znoimo subregion. Excellent Pinot Gris, Palava, Sauvignons, and Pinot Blancs are also produced here. It's a famous and very well-regarded area, but it's mainly made up of smaller producers. Only the wine village of Vrbovets makes it into the top 10, with 344 hectares of grapes and 71 producers. And then there's Mikulov, the king of the Moravian wine subregions. It includes Mikulov, Valtica, Lednica, Dolny Dunajovica, and Novosedli, among other places. With around 1,970 hectares of vineyards in the top 10, it has four of the top six wine-producing towns and villages in the country. The National Wine Center and the National Wine Salon are both in Valtica, as is the only viticulture high school in the country. Check our first episode about UNESCO sites for more on the Valtica Lednica region. And the town of Mikulov itself just might be the cutest town in the entire Czech Republic. It is certainly one of my favorite places, if not my actual favorite place, in the country. Lots of vino branis in the area and honestly, some of the best wines. Technically, the subregion extends all the way up to the Moravian capital of Brno. So when considering trying some Czech wines, the general rule of thumb is you can't really go wrong with anything from the Mikulov, Velka Pavlovica, or Znojmo subregions, and yet don't overlook Slovatsko either. It's worth checking out. Generally speaking, white wines are favored in Moravia, though they do have some reds of note. Red wine grapes were actually known as black grapes once upon a time, a fact you can still see in names like Pinot Noir, which literally means black pine, probably a reference to the fact that the grapes grow close together, kind of, sort of, resembling a pine cone. But some German varieties were also known as blue grapes, such as the Blaue Portugiesa, or Blue Portuguese grape, but they're really all what we would call red. Let's take a quick look at the grape varieties cultivated here in the Czech Republic. 
For white wines, the top slot production wines goes to Pinot Gris, or Grey Pinot, sometimes called Pinot Grigio in Italian, Grauburgunder in Germany, and in Czech it's known as Rulanska Schede. Depending on how you handle them, these grapes can produce a wine with a touch more sweet than acid, or it can be turned into a pretty dry, high alcohol content wine. About 9.45% of the grapes here are Riesling, called Riesling Rinsky in Czech, a variety from the Rhine Valley in Germany. Czech wines made from these grapes are often drier and less sweet than their counterparts elsewhere in Europe. Chardonnay has made big inroads here, accounting for 9.15% of white wine produced. This grape originally comes from Burgundy in France, but now it's all over the world. Personally, I only like California Chardonnays, but I'm from there, so of course I would say that. This grape probably comes from a spontaneous crossing of Pinot Blanc plants and a grape called Goulai Blanc that was all over Europe in the Middle Ages, naturally bred with a whole bunch of different varieties, and then, we think, went extinct. Sauvignon Blancs make up 8.65% of production and the aromatic Gewürztraminer 7.79%. Like the Rieslings, Czech Gewürztraminers, known here as Tramin Cervini, are less sweet than their counterparts elsewhere and are actually pretty drinkable. The Palava grape is a homegrown Czech original, developed by Josef Veverka, whose name means Joseph Squirrel, in 1953 by crossbreeding Gewürztraminer and Müller-Turgau grapes. These produce a full-bodied, subtly sweet, aromatic, golden yellow wine. The Mikulov subregion accounts for 45% of all Palava grapes grown. The Grüne Veltliner, or Green Veltliner, comes next with 7.53% of production. It's a very old grape variety that's all over Austria, Hungary, Slovakia, and here. Austria honestly makes probably the best Veltlands, and they know it. 32.6% of all Austrian vineyards grow just this grape, but there are some mighty fine Moravian Veltlands as well. In Czech, this type of wine is known as Veltlinska Zelena. Next up, we have Velks Riesling, called Riesling Vlaschtsky, or Italian Riesling here, a grape that is not in fact related to German Rieslings at all, despite having Riesling in the German name. Pinot Blanc, here called Rulanskabila, is produced here. This is a genetic mutation of the Pinot Noir grape, though it's white. Then we have Hibernal, which is a crossbreed of Seibel and a Riesling clone developed in Germany in 1944. Müller-Turgau, created in Switzerland by Hermann Müller by crossing Riesling with a grape used for making table wine known as Madeleine Royale. There's Moravian Muscat, called Muscat Moravski, which is a nutmeggy, somewhat sweet variety, again unique to Moravia. Silvana, or Silvanska Zelena, is a German and Alsatian grape that can be quite flexible. The Austrian Neuburger grape, here called Neuburske, is a cross between Red Veltliner and Silvaner grapes that produces a full-bodied wine. Aurelius, a cross of the aforementioned Austrian Neuburger, which is itself a hybrid, and Riesling, is also unique to this country. Solaris is a German grape created by crossbreeding crossbreeds. Made in Germany in 1975 by taking a grape that was a cross of Riesling and Pinot Gris and then crossing that with a plant that was itself a hybrid created in Czechoslovakia in 1964, a cross between the Balkan Muscat Otanau and the Asian Russian Zarya Severa or Northern Lights grape. How's that for a complicated family history? Again, this offbeat grape is called Solaris and it is quite hard to find accounting for only 1% of white wine made here. 
This country also makes tiny amounts of the Hungarian hybrid Ursai Oliver, developed in 1930. It's kind of a muscat. The aromatic Kerner, which you can find all over the Sud Tyrol region in northern Italy. This was created in Germany in 1929 by crossing the southern Tyrol Vernach red grapes with white Riesling grapes. And clocking in at a mere 0.57% of wine produced here, there is the Dievin variety. It's a Slovak grape that crosses Gewürztraminer with a very old grape variety known as Red and White Veltliner. This itself may have been a natural hybrid that came about when a Red Veltliner got frisky with the now probably extinct Gulai Blanc grape that helped make Chardonnay a thing. So, that's the whites. Now let's look at the reds, or the blacks if you prefer, or the blues. Topping the list of reds with a whopping 17.39% of red wine production is Pinot Noir, here called Rulanska Modre, or Blue Pinot. You know it, you love it, it's everywhere. We think it started off in Burgundy and France, and it has now spread all over the world. In second place, with 16.95% of production, there is Blau Frankisch, or Frankovka in Czech, a very dark-skinned grape producing a heavy, tannic red wine grown all throughout the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. It seems like it was probably a hybrid from the Middle Ages that came about naturally in Lower Styria, which is in present-day Slovenia, when that ancient and apparently super frisky Goulet Blanc variety cuddled up to another very old red variety known simply as the Blue Grape, sometimes also called the Cinnamon Grape, which was an offspring of an older type of grape known as Blue Goosefoot. Frankovka wines can be real touch-and-go. When done right, they're meaty and spicy and satisfying. Generally, as I said before, stick to the ones from the Znoimo region and you're pretty safe. Frankovka plants are also quite hardy and they have been used to make a number of new grape hybrid varieties. Next is Zweigelt, developed by Friedrich Zweigelt in Austria in 1922 by crossing a Frankovka plant with the Moravian Saint Laurent, which itself was a sort of a natural hybrid of Pinot Noir and something else, we don't know what. In Czech, this is called Zweigeltreba. Then there's the Saint Laurent, previously mentioned, which is called Svatovavzhenetska in Czech. And Czech Svatovavzhenetska wines can be quite good. This and Zvigeltreba are, in fact, my two favorite Czech reds. Next is Cabernet Sauvignon. You know it, you love it, which is a 17th century French hybrid between a Cabernet Franc and a Sauvignon Blanc. Then there's Blaua Portuguesa, or Modri Portugal, the Blue Portugal, one of the permitted grapes to be used in making Hungarian bull's blood. The story goes a plant was brought to Austria from the Portuguese city of Oporto, which is where port wine comes from, but this story is probably not true. It's thought that the plant probably originated in Hungary. Merlot has made it here, now accounting for 5.65% of production. Then there's the very dark-skinned Dornfelder, created in Germany in 1955 by crossing a German hybrid of Vernach and Frühburgunder with another hybrid of Frankovka and Blauer Portugese. There's Cabernet Moravia, which is a hybrid of Zweigelt and the Bordeaux Cabernet Franc, created in this country in 1975. Andre is another Czech creation, this time from 1960, which comes from combining Frankovka and St. Laurent plants. Neuronet was created in Brno in 1965, a cross between a St. Laurent and a Blue Portugal hybrid with an Odessan hybrid, which is itself a cross between a Cabernet Sauvignon and a French Alicante Boucher. Boy, this stuff gets complicated. 
The narrow net was an 1824 attempt to create a grapevine that was resistant to those nasty little phylloxera bugs. And finally, we have Alibernet, which is a hybrid of Petit Boucher with Grenache, and which was invented in the Ukraine in 1950. Wow! Who knew tracing grape types could be so complicated? It's like trying to trace royal family lines throughout the centuries in Europe. It should be noted that some Czech producers are also getting comfortable making rosé wines now as well. As I said, September is Vino Brani season when the grapes are harvested and winemaking begins. Actually, that process starts earlier at the beginning of August, but September is when the country parties in full swing. There are wine celebrations in Znoimo, in Mikulov, where there's a parade and a king and queen of the festival and just madness, all throughout Prague and Brno and even in smaller cities, towns, and villages. Pretty much everybody gets in on the Vino Brani action, and while there's plenty of wine around, both homegrown and imported from abroad, the real draw at Vino Brani, besides booze, food, and live music, is Bruchok. The way you make wine is, you pick grapes, press or crush them somewhat gently to break the skins and release the juice and the pulp with all that sugar without breaking the seeds. If you're making white wine, you just ferment the juice and pulp. If you're making red, you'll also include skins and unbroken seeds for color and tannins, which are chemicals that add bitterness. All this stuff goes into a fermentation vat. There might be some natural yeasts hanging around, so most places dump sulfites in there to kill them and then add their own yeasts so they have more control over the final product. However, some wines are unsulfonated. If you have an allergic reaction to wine, especially red wine, try an unsulfonated one. You may find that reaction goes away. Just check the label. If it says contains sulfates, well, then it has sulfates. So now goes in the yeast and you heat it up a bit between 18 and 20 degrees Celsius for white and between 20 and 30 degrees Celsius for red. And that gets the yeast all excited and they start eating sugar, nom, 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 and pooping out alcohol and farting out CO2 and making babies who do the same thing. Fermentation normally goes on for two to five weeks depending on a number of factors. But if you remove the liquid from the fermentation vat after just a few days, you get... Brchak. This is a juice that's a bit boozy and quite sweet, and yes, it is still fermenting. The yeast party going on in there makes a lot of CO2, which might cause your bottle to explode. Something I can personally attest to, when a few years ago I forgot about a two-liter bottle of red burchak in the fridge for a week, and then I tried to open it like a normal bottle, and well, it took ages to clean up the resulting explosion. I mean, it was on the ceiling. This is why some stands that sell burchak will not even put an actual cap on the bottle, but simply fold a napkin into a long rectangle and sit it in the mouth of the bottle, allowing the gases, which are still being produced, to escape. Burchak's usually around 4% alcohol, but it's still fermenting, so it becomes more alcoholic over time, and stuff that's sitting around for a while could be 9%, and I've even heard of 13% burchak, which is basically the same as regular wine. In Bavaria and Austria, it's called Fetteweisse, which means white feather, a reference to its cloudy look from all that uh, suspended yeast. It's just called Young Wine, Jungewein, or New Sweet, Neue Süße, in Switzerland and southwest Germany and South Tyrol. And the Czechs sometimes call it Old Man's Milk, but usually they just call it Brchak, which might be a word that comes from an old Moravian slang word meaning thunder. And the thundering comes from you. Because as I said, this stuff is still fermenting. And it is still fermenting even after you drink it. 
The little yeasts are still going at it until your stomach acid manages to kill them. So you drink it and then there will be more alcohol in your system a little bit after you drink it, which sounds like magic. A drink that increases its alcohol content after you drink it? Wow! Well, yes, almost certainly the main selling point of Burchak. Plus, it can be delicious, especially the red, but it can also be a dank, gym sock tasting, yeasty abomination. It depends on A, who made it, and B, how long it's been sitting around. On the whole, sticking to Burchaks from Znoimo and Mikhailov is your best bet. And, talking about the thundering, Burchak can also sometimes run right through you. Like, right through you. As in, forcing you to seek out a comfort station with the utmost haste, and frankly, if need be, these bushes will suffice because things just got urgent. The Czechs say, this is healthy. There's an old Moravian saying that to guarantee health for the year, you should drink as much brchak during brchak season as there is blood in your body. Humans average about 1.2 to 1.5 gallons of blood. So yes, brchak cleans you out. Now, keep in mind, it doesn't always do that, unless, of course, you chug it. And when it's a good brchak, it's a kind of perfect balance between boozy, sweet, and a very slight yeastiness with an almost creamy component. When it's good, it's good. How do you know a good one? First, look at it. If it's made from white wine grapes, it should be white or slightly gray or even a little bit brown is okay. But if it's very brown, it's probably not okay. Then smell it. It'll be an unusual smell, but there should also be something like a, a freshness about it. If it hits your nose and makes you step back in abject horror, it's probably not a great idea to drink it unless you've been backed up for a few days. You should drink it pretty much right after you buy it. Keeping it in your fridge for a week or so is dangerous, as my exploding red butterchalk story should make clear. Plus, it can get nasty. The bonus is that, well, you're home, and home is where your favorite toilet is, so if things do go awry, at least there's that small comfort. After the fermentation period in the winemaking process, the fermented juice gets moved into a clearing vat. Fermentation stops, and now you need to get all the little bits out, the yeasts, both dead and still alive, particulates from the pulp, etc. Heavier bits sink down to the bottom of the clearing vat, and the lightest bits float up to the top, creating a kind of a scum. The stuff at the bottom passes out through filters, and the stuff at the top gets skimmed off. But there still are some other particulates, neither too big or too small, that just hang suspended in the liquid. So you put it in a second clearing vat, and a fining substance is passed through the liquid, which is a something that's viscous but also porous to act as a sort of a semi-liquid broom that grabs the rest of the particulates, as well as colloids, which are molecules that have things like tannins and resins and long-chain carbohydrates that came out during fermentation. Common fining substances include egg whites, which also reduce acidity and bitterness in reds, milk casins, which are proteins found in milk, gelatin, isinglass, a gelatin made from fish, bentonite, which is a clay with volcanic ash in it, and sometimes even just treated carbon. Obviously, the first of these things, since they're animal products, would prevent a wine from being certified vegan. So now you have a clear fermented juice, but it still isn't wine. To get that, you need oxygen molecules to get into this liquid and bond. So wine is oxidized fermented juice. 
Oxidation takes place in two phases, in a cask and in a bottle, and we call this aging the wine. Casks are made of wood and are quite porous, so oxygen can pass through easily and get into the liquid in a slow, steady stream. How long you cask age the wine depends on a number of factors, but basically around a few weeks to a few months for whites and up to two years for reds. After that period is passed, the wine is bottled and aging continues at a much slower rate through the cork. In a Czech vinoteca, which is a wine shop where you can buy bottles of wine, it might be possible to buy some of this cask wine, or Sudova vina, wine still in the process of aging. It's not brčak, which is still fermenting, but it's also not quite a proper wine yet. Usually, you bring in an empty bottle, like a plastic two-liter bottle you've washed out, and they fill it up right from the cask for you. Often, they'll let you taste it as well. Now, why would you do this? Is that like eating something before it's cooked properly? Well, yeah, it is. But first of all, Sudovavino is cheaper. You pay by the liter. You can use it for cooking or you can just drink it for pleasure. It certainly has alcohol in it. And while it isn't nearly as complex and interesting as a properly aged wine, it will give you something of an idea of what that particular wine will probably be like once it's done aging properly. So it's sort of a sneak preview. It's also worth noting that while around two years in the cask is normal for red wines in most places, the Czechs are a bit impatient and have a tendency to only age red wines for around a year. So you can get wine or suit of Avena at Avinoteca. You can also go to Vini Sklep or wine cellar, C-E-L-L-A-R, as opposed to Avinoteca, which is a wine cellar, S-E-L-L-E-R, huh? A Sklep is a place that probably stores modest amounts of wine for bottle aging and or will sell you glasses. A tasting room, essentially. Sometimes with the primary purpose of trying to hopefully get you to buy a bottle of wine after you've tasted. They may also have some simple snacks to prevent deep intoxication too quickly. In wine producing regions, there are many, many, many wine cellars ranging from private individuals to a winery that makes a lot per year. In cities, these are essentially tasting rooms that are a bit more serious than the next category of place to try wine. And then we have a vinyarna, which is a wine bar. Essentially, a pub for wine, with many different kinds of wine by the glass available. They may also sell bottles, but the price will be much higher than at a Vinoteca or Vini Sklep. A Vignana might also have more substantial things to eat, probably not fully composed dishes or anything, but something a bit more complicated than just little snacks. So a Vinoteca is where you go to buy a bottle of wine you know you want, or to try an early version of a particular wine in pseudo-Vavino form. A Vini Sklep is where you go to sample wines with an eye to probably buying some here or at a Vinoteca later and talk about wines and so on. Both of these types of places may also have brchak during brchak season. A Vignarna is where you go to sample various wines from all over by the glass just for the pleasure of doing so. Maybe a few will have brchak, but very often not. You can also find wine vaults in this country. These are wine cellars, Vini Sklepi, that have an additional service. You can store your wine there for a fee. Let's say you splurge on a 4,000 bottle of Cote de Bone Burgundy Red and you know you cannot possibly store it properly at home. So you take it to a wine vault, pay the membership fee, and they will store it for you in the correct conditions. Whenever you want it, you would draw it from the vault or you can pay an additional fee and an experienced sommelier will open it and pour it there in a special room just for this purpose for you and your friends and they'll also provide some basic snacks. For a wine-forward holiday, you might consider one of the Vinyarska Steski, or wine trails, sometimes called wine pads, that are all over 
the wine regions in this country. There are almost 1,200 kilometers of walking and cycling trails in southern Moravia that take you past vineyards and larger, more famous wineries, as well as little out-of-the-way individual producers. You tool along, enjoying being in the nature, as the Czechs say, then stop off at a wine place, have a glass or two, maybe a snack, and then set out again. There are shorter routes like the Pavlov Vineyards and Wine Cellars Trail, which is three kilometers long and has 18 separate places you can visit, the Starohora Vine Path and the Voltica Educational Vine Path, three and a half and five kilometers long respectively, and then there are the longer ones like the Educational Viticulture Path Mikulov, 20 kilometers long, the Mikulov Vine Path, 82 kilometers long, and the Comprehensive Moravian Vine Path, which is 280 kilometers long. Because these kinds of places will always take you in or near a town or village, there are usually some proper restaurants along the way and even accommodation. So you could make a whole multi-day trip around Moravian wine. You could even rent bikes in most of these areas. Check the episode note for links to websites to help you in this endeavor. Don Ho once sang that tiny bubbles in the wine made him feel happy, made him feel fine. I personally am not really a fan of sparkling wines, but many people are, and this country has a famous version, Bohemia Sect. There's a long history as to why certain wines get so much carbonation in them going back centuries, but it was the English who really took to this. Funnily enough, despite the fact that grapevines really don't grow well in Britain, we have the English to thank for a number of innovations. A type of sweet red wine from the northern Portuguese city of Oporto became very popular in Britain and large quantities were shipped from Portugal to the British Isles. But the motion of the ships on the water made the wine slosh around, which got more oxygen into them, which made them spoil. So a grape distillate, sort of a grappa, was added to the wine to fortify it. This stops fermentation in its tracks and also increases both the sugar content of the wine and the alcohol content. And this is port wine. Other fortified wines include sherry, which the British also love, originating in the Spanish wine town of Jerez, Sicilian Marsala wine, Madeira, and technically vermouth is a fortified wine that has been aromatized, as the term goes, with herbs and spices. It was British aristocrats always on the lookout for the next interesting tipple that started looking at why some certain wines would get all these bubbles in them and become something really quite different. English scientist Christopher Merritt figured out some of the secret, publishing a paper in 1662 outlining sugar content and a second fermentation that takes place in certain circumstances. This new understanding plus innovations in glass production, which allow for much thicker bottles, before that sparkling wines would just explode like burchak, shattering the bottle. All this meant they could now purposely make a wine that sparkled and then store it in these nice, thick, explode-proof bottles. Seeing a massive market open up, French wine producers started pumping out the stuff into happy British aristos, homes, salons, and mounds. So while today the word champagne technically only refers to sparkling wines made in the Champagne region of France, about 130 kilometers or so east of Paris, just like Prosecco is technically only from nine Italian provinces in Frulia, Venezia, Guilia, and the Veneto, and the village of Prosecco near Trieste, there are all sorts of sparkling wines today. There's Spanish Cava, Portuguese Espumante, and Hungarian Pesgu. Some sparkling wines get all that CO2 naturally, while other places have to inject the CO2 into the wine. But there's another category of bubbly called sect, 
S-E-K-T. This is a German term for a naturally carbonated sparkling wine and is made in Germany, but there are also variations of sect found in Austria and here. The first production facility for any sparkling wine outside of France on the continent was actually in Bratislava, once called Pressburg, the capital of Slovakia. This was set up in 1825, the Hubert J.E. Company, which still makes sect today. The methods spread throughout the region, and today the company Bohemia Sect, originally set up in 1871, but really kicking off in 1942, yes, under the Nazi occupation, and Nazi officers insisted that production greatly increase and that they create some sort of sect for them. The first batch produced was a sparkling red called Black Widow, which came out in 1945, just after the war ended. And the story in the region is that the Czechs purposely dragged their feet because they didn't want the Nazis to have something nice. And then they finished up just in time to serve Black Widow to the American soldiers who had liberated Pilsen. This all happened in Stari Pilsenets, which is the original settlement of the famous city of Pilsen. And Bohemia Sect today is one of the main producers of sect in the area, making 35% of all sect in this country, selling 28 million bottles a year domestically and abroad. But there are other producers as well, notably the Tansberg Winery in Mikulov and the Jerzy Lobkowitz Winery Chateau Mielnik in, obviously, Mielnik. Sect almost always has a mislay around the cork, this safety cage that helps prevent the cork from launching out like a rocket due to all the carbonation beneath it. Sect is very bubbly, more so very often than Prosecco or Champagne, and often quite sweet. Czechs drink a lot of sect in December, since it's a celebratory drink, and Czechs sure do love their Christmas time. At somewhere usually around 150 to 200 crowns a bottle, that's like seven to nine dollars, it's a totally affordable way to get your party on. There are seven categories of sect here ranked by sweetness. The sweeter it is though, the worse the hangover. There's Brut Nature, which has zero added sugars and less than three grams of sugar per liter. Extra Brut has zero to six grams of sugar per liter. Brut has up to 15 grams of sugar. Extra dry, between 12 and 20 grams. Sec, 17 and 35 grams. Demi-sec, between 33 and 50. And finally, there's du, which has a sugar content in excess of 50 grams per liter. That is quite a range. As I said, Czechs like the sweet stuff, and Bohemia Demi-sect, the second highest sweet category, between 33 and 50 grams of sugar per liter, is the most popular with about 5 million bottles of this being sold per year. Personally, it's too sweet for me. I prefer the brute categories, and if I have to, I'll try an extra dry. There are a couple of champagne and sparkling wine bars in Prague, like Champanaria, on a narrow pedestrian-only street in Old Town, just down from Convict Bar and not far from Betlemska Namjesty. As mentioned earlier, there are tons of wine festivals all around the country in September, including many here in Prague. Plus, just about everywhere will be selling Brchok for the whole month as well. There are festivals in the summer devoted to rosé wines, Prosecco, Italian wines, or what have you. 
Check the episode notes for links to our Facebook page for events in Prague, the Prague Haps, to see upcoming festivals and more fun. The weather this year, 2021, has been quite conducive to grapes, and I predict that the 2021 grapes will be known as particularly good ones. So this could be a very good time, sometime in the late autumn, early winter, to try some Sudabavina from this year's harvest. Finally, a little bit of advice for wine drinkers here. If you find yourself at a pub or vignata on a hot day, you might consider getting a vini streak or cut. This is essentially a wine spritzer, wine mixed with mineral water. Use matroni from Carlo Vivari for the best taste and carbonation. This gets your alcohol in smaller doses and also rehydrates you at the same time. It's an old trick for being able to drink really all day long and still function to some degree. It's also an excellent way to deal with wine that isn't very good. Like if you end up with a nastier Frankovka, just mix that half and half with some matrony and you're good to go. Bottoms up! Thank you for listening to this episode of Prague Times. If you liked this episode, be sure to like it or share it and tell your friends. Check us out on all of our social media platforms for extra goodies as well. Until next time, this has been Prague Times.